Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan. And today we have an absolute legend of a guest. I am not joking. This is Steve Ross. Steve has been in Phuket, Thailand, and specifically Thailand, since the 1980s. Um, he had a very popular um, uh, column called The Rock from uh, the newspaper, The Nation. Now, The Nation is one of the most popular news media outlets in Thailand, uh, especially from the 80s. He then went on to the Phuket Gazette, which was purchased by Tim Newton and the Tigers. So today we're going to be specifically focusing on uh, Steve's life and a little bit about his stories in Thailand in the 80s and the 90s. Uh, he's been away for 25 years and he's making his return. He's got an excellent YouTube channel. you got to check it out. It is um, Postcards from Turtle Beach. I, I got that one. I, that's a lot of words to put together. Thank you. Um, you must check it out. To be honest, to the audience, I still don't know what to make of the channel. I watched one episode. I said, what the fuck is this? I watched two. I said, I want more. I'm still on episode 13. I still say, what the hell is this? But I'm hooked. So I don't know how else to explain it. You got to check it out. It's something way different than that vlogger cookie cutter garbage out there. Sorry to all you Thai vloggers out there. It's completely new. It's fresh. It's raw. It's rugged. Check it out. Now, before we start, don't forget to like, subscribe, share, hit that bell, but please subscribe. It's going to help us out in the algorithm. Uh, again, we don't have sponsors. We ain't taking them. We do not take any. Don't hit us up. So without further ado, we're going to start this podcast off with Steve Ross. Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Brenda. I'm very flattered. Thank you very much. And that, that introduction was very flattering as well. You're very kind. Yeah, it's, uh, I had a bit of coffee. That's The coffee mm -hmm. gets it going. Sometimes <laughs> I'm trying to string, I'm speaking faster than I can string the words or, or get that you know, pronunciation properly out. Um, the first half, and uh, we explained before the podcast, this will probably go for about 90 minutes. I'm guessing it could go three hours. Let's find out. But the first half, we're really going to focus on Steve Ross in Phuket in the 80s and 90s. And I'm going to try to reflect on different stories and regions in Phuket and what was it specifically like back then. So before we get into the life of Steve Ross, so this is going to be more like a Quentin Tarantino podcast. We'll get to that later. Um, let's start off Bangla Road. What was it like when you first got here? 1987? Yeah, 88. 88. No November 1988. Uh, I, left New I left New York the day that the first George Bush was elected president of the United States. So that'll put it in context for at least American listeners. Uh, and I came for a three-month holiday originally and fell in love with the place and decided it was originally, the trip was supposed to be, uh, I was working in the film industry in New York City and I had an art director tell me, you're no more fun on the set. You're not fun anymore. I want you to leave. I want you to go away for a few months. And when you come back, if you're relaxed and you're funny again, I'll hire you. And so I booked a three-month trip that would begin in Bangkok, go south through Phuket, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, Java, Bali, and end with a cross-country trek from north to south across Australia. And I got as far as Phuket and stopped and stayed here for three months and blew off all my deposits, all my reservations for the rest of the trip. And on the way home, a, a series of things happened on the, on the trip home to New York City that convinced me uh, I, I really wanted to live here. I did not want to live in New York City anymore, which is saying something because I loved my career in the film industry and I loved New York City. When I visit today, I still love New, New York City and I have a great sense of belonging there. 
Uh, I spent the Reagan years there. Uh, the most financially successful period of my life was in New York City in the 1980s. And uh, I gave all that up to come live in a grass shack on Cotta Beach and teach English in the hotels for $4 an hour and a free lunch. This was your return to Phuket, though. Your initial, your initial stint was kind of a well, r, my initial, r, and r My initial stint was, was three months uh, shooting pool and taking drugs on the beach. That was it. Okay. Three months of that. I went home and spent a year. I had commitments to uh, more movies, including a movie called Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. I was the set decorator on that film. I had committed to that before I left. So I went back, and among selling all my possessions, including all my winter clothing, I was so convinced I would never come back to America, I sold all my winter clothing, sold the furniture out of my apartment, and did these last few movies. And it turned out, do the right thing. I could have built a whole career off that movie. It's really famous now. And I was the set decorator. I was the head of the props department. And uh, I walked away from all of it because I loved Phuket that much. And I came back, and like I said, I started out teaching English in the hotels, uh, became a DJ on the radio, FM 89.5, which broadcast from the top of Kaurang Mountain in Phuket Town. And I did a, a four-hour rock and roll show seven nights a week for six months until I got fired, and, uh, which is kind of the story of my life. And uh, eventually I became the uh, public relations manager for the Boathouse Hotel on Kata Beach. And I stayed there until I left in 1997. So I was on Phuket from 90 to 97. And your question about Soi Bangla, uh, I, I've never been a big partier. I've, I don't drink alcohol, uh, but I love sitting in the corner and watching a party. I'm the guy who only leaves the corner to empty the ashtrays compulsively. You know, I, otherwise, I stand in the corner and watch everybody and listen to what everybody says. So a place like Soi Bangla is tailor-made for me. I would go people watching. Bar. People watching, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's drama. There's, there's more drama than uh, at the opera. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's wonderful. It's bizarre. And in one way, it's the, it's the same thing every night. That ritual of boy meets girl in a soy bangla bar never changes, never will. There's 700 years of marketing research and research and development put into making that process go as smoothly and seamlessly as possible, getting the money out of his pocket and putting it into her pocket. That's all that machine does, but it does it gorgeously, efficiently, and almost effortlessly, night after night after night, year after year, decade after decade. That, with everything that has changed on Phuket, and everything has changed on Phuket in the 25 years I was away, that remains the same. Uh, what I witnessed when I would go out once a week uh, and just go up and down Soi Bangla, both sides of the street, talk to everybody who would talk to me, have a free orange juice in every single bar in the street. And I have done something like that, similar to that. I no longer get free orange juice. <laughs> but that was the power of a newspaper column in the 1990s. That power is gone. That will mm -hmm. never come back. Nobody cares about newspaper columns now. But it used to be a real powerful thing, and everybody wanted me to put their, their business in my column. So everywhere I went, I would get free orange juice. Uh, and what I witnessed on those nights uh, during the 1990s, uh, that is still going now. I mean, um, Connect Four, the game Connect Four. Uh, hello, sexy man, where you go? Welcome. What you think, what you name, where you come from, how old you 
you like me? You want to take me home? But you said that a couple script. things. A couple things have changed in, uh, and this was from your YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking like that. Um, the 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 mystery of the farang coming into Thailand, in which they looked at you and they, you know. They will grab your arm and rub your hairy arm and say "mao mao mao," and and there's a certain aspect that has you have noticed that has changed from then to today. Could you explain that maybe in a bit more detail what you meant by that exactly? Yeah, well, <laughs> and and there's probably you know I'll I'll, I'll 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 intercept the trolls before they hit the comment section. Yeah, a lot of it is my perception. We all perceive life subjectively. I will only ever know, like the Buddha said, what my five senses will bring me. And I will never see, smell, hear, taste, experience exactly what you will or what Hans will or any of the viewers will or any of the listeners will. Uh, But in my subjective experience in these last few months on Phuket, not anywhere else, not Chiang Mai, not Padia, not Bangkok, but on Phuket, uh, in the bar soys, there used to be, well, all of the women working there were working the long game. They all wanted to marry a farang and go to, ban, uh, go to Tang Patet and, and send money home to the family. They all wanted a long assignation. They didn't like short time. Now, it appears, in my subjective experience, that they're all looking for short time. They don't want a relationship. They want to, you know, go with you, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, take your money and come back to the bar and hopefully get another guy tonight. Uh, and so there was an awful lot of ego stroking. There was an awful lot of pandering to the very, very fragile male ego. And we are all, all of us, anybody born with a penis is fueled by ego. Uh, we're not fueled by lust. We're not fueled by greed. We're not fueled by ambition, except as those are props within the daily drama of our own ego. And so the women used to know, and they used to practice this, like you say, stroking the hairs on your arm because Thai men typically don't have hair on their arms or their legs. And, and the women would, oh, he's so nice, so soft, you're so handsome. You know, and they would tell every guy who sat down there, you're so handsome. I remember one experience uh, on the soy that is now called Soy Spider-Man in Kata Beach. There was a guy who used to be called a thalidomide baby. I don't know what the medical term for it is. I should. Uh, But the condition is he had no arms or legs. He was born with flippers. And it's from a drug they used to, in the UK, give women uh, who had morning sickness and pregnancy very severe. And they would give these women this drug that would calm their stomachs. But that drug, as it turned out, would rob the fetus of its limbs. So you get these perfectly normal human beings born without arms or legs. So there was this guy, a torso, on a bar stool. He was sitting with the most attractive, prettiest teenage bar girl in the world, gorgeous girl. She was holding him up on his stool with one hand, and she was holding the straw from his beer with the other hand so that he could take a sip of his beer. And the two of them were talking and chatting and laughing like any other couple on that street. And I guarantee you that that girl was telling that guy, you so sexy, you so handsome, because that's what they did, right? I think today my impression is they wouldn't bother with that. They would still seek this man's money. They would still give him sex for money. 
But that whole pandering to the fragile male ego, again, in one man's experience on this one beach <laughs> for the past four months, uh, that's completely gone. And uh, with it, you know, I noticed something here coming up to Surin Beach to do this interview. I stopped for lunch in a cafe and I spoke Thai to the waitress and she got angry with me. And this is something that happens. Uh, somebody who's been hired for her English language skills doesn't want you to speak Thai to her. doesn't matter how fluent your Thai is. She doesn't want it. She wants to show off that she speaks English. That's why she was hired for this position. That's what the rest of the staff are expecting from her. And if you show that you speak Thai, that's taking away her power. And so you find in really, really touristy places uh, that there's kind of an antagonism when you speak Thai. On the other hand, out where I live on Turtle Beach, uh, I can go a week without hearing English spoken. There's nobody who speaks English. There's like one guy who went to school in, in, in the UK, and he will stop on the street, on the main street. He'll be going by, and I'll be walking. I walk up and down that street with my camera and take pictures, and he'll be driving by on his motorcycle, and he'll screech to a stop and shout in English at me because he's so pleased to have an opportunity to use his English. Yep. But he's the one guy. He's the one guy. Other than that, everybody is grateful and happy and relieved that this Falang who's just stepped into their shop and likely the first Falang who has ever stepped into the shop, ever. You know, it's a 100-year-old shop house. They've been selling fishing nets and fish hooks for 100 years, and no Falang has ever stepped into their shop. And they look at me like with fear. They're almost shaking with fear. How am I going to talk to this guy? What's going to happen in this situation? And I speak Thai to them. And even with my functional level of Thai literacy, it's enough that there's this enormous wave of relief that comes over them. <gasps> oh, their whole posture changes. They straighten up. They, they, they start hunched over, and then they straighten up. And uh, it's the complete opposite when you're in a place that, that's, that's really touristy. Much of Phuket has become that now. A lot of places where I've gone on Phuket, uh, central, super cheap, the outlet mall, you walk in and you greet the sales girl in, in Thai and she will reply to you in English with a look on her face that says, we're going to speak English, you understand? It wasn't like that back when you, when oh you first got no. here? Oh, God, no. I mean, like, you know. At, like, I, I understand that as well. Like, so I, I lived in China. I lived in Taiwan and Shenzhen and, and Thailand or Phuket. Mm -hmm. And in Taiwan, same problem. Uh, I would speak Chinese to the 7-Eleven. And they just reply in English. So your Chinese doesn't get better. In yeah. China, Shenzhen, if you don't speak Chinese, you're not doing anything. It's still to yeah. this day. Um, same problem in Phuket. It's I'll learn Thai and learn enough, but you never get to really practice it because there's always a block. So back to the 80s and, and 90s, when you're late 80s and 90s, when you're here, um, if you were to use, let's say, Thai at a 7-Eleven or just the, uh, a restaurant. Are you saying that like zero English response? Yeah, well, zero 7-Elevens, dude. Zero McDonald's, zero movies or in English, in, zero bowling alleys, zero, yeah, no. But it existed. Was, what, 7-Eleven? Like, yes. No. Okay. Not in Phuket. Wow. I, I don't remember seeing a 7-Eleven anywhere in but Thailand. But any convenience store you went into, like. Oh, no. Well, on the beaches, in the better hotels, for instance, I worked eventually at the boathouse. 
Okay. So everybody at front desk, everybody at reception, everybody in, in management and administration was hired for their English language skills. So they much, much preferred that I speak to them in English. You step 10 paces away from the beach in 1988, and you're in Thailand, and they don't speak English. You know, the people who worked at the little Nitnoy shop, first of all, like Kata Beach was a strip. There were three hotels, the Club Med, the Kata Beach Resort, and the Boathouse. That was it. That's all that was on the beach. And outside of their walls, it was a little Thai village with a temple and a little elementary school and a police station and big fields of pineapple and rubber and coconut. And that was Kata Beach, right? Batong. Why is it called Batong? It means golden jungle because it used to be one enormous banana plantation. Everything from the high tide mark to the mountain was bananas. And once a year, they all turned yellow. All the banana trees turned yellow. It was a golden jungle. That's Batong means. Find me a banana tree in Patong today. You can't. Even as, as yard decor, you find can't. You find me a banana bar, maybe. Well, maybe a banana bar, a banana hammock, some guy, some <laughs> European on the beach. Uh, but my point is that back then, there was this touristy stuff going along on the western beaches from Kamala South and really focused in uh, Batong, Kata, and, and, and Rawai, Naihan, a little bit in Naihan, uh, with the yacht club there. And Momtri Dewakun was the man who set all that up. Momtri launched tourism on Phuket. Who, who is this guy, though, exactly, this man? Well, Momtri, he's, he's a Momluang. He is the great-grandson of a king, in this case, Rama IV. Okay. The Tewakun family was very, very heavily connected with the last royal administration, number nine. And uh, Momtri, the guy I worked for, his father kind of blew the family fortune on projects at the urging of the royal establishment. Projects to bring rain to Ethan, uh, back when people, you know, noticed there was there's a drought for the last sixty years in Ethan, uh, and he did things like he seeded clouds with dry ice and all this stuff, and he blew, you know, three four hundred years of dynastic wealth on these projects for the crown, and so the son was left with not much except some pieces of property along the west coast of this dinky little island called Phuket which of course was always worthless property. Anything on the beaches was given to the Muslims because it was worthless. You couldn't grow anything there. You could grow maybe coconuts, pineapple, and that was it. You couldn't even grow rubber close to the, tr go close to the beach, and you couldn't grow rice at all anywhere on this island. You couldn't grow rice. So that land was worthless. All that beach property, which is why now, <laughs> well, I'm sure it's over by now, but there used to be these long, long discussions whenever they built a hotel on the beach because inevitably there was a Muslim graveyard there. Yeah. Because the Muslims don't burn the bodies, they bury the bodies standing up. And there was always a Muslim cemetery there that you had to build around. And then your, your luxury resort was built around <laughs> a graveyard. And God help you trying to find staff who would come in and work in a place built on a burial ground, right? But in any way, Momtri also had a connection to General Prem, who was a military strongman who was uh, one of the prime ministers during the 70s and early 80s. Very powerful, very powerful man. And Momtri and he were friends. And between, so, so Momtri came back from America. He was educated in Harvard, at Harvard. And he came back 
And he said, what am I going to do? I'm the eldest son. I need to reestablish this family fortune that my father squandered or else we're all going to end up driving tuk-tuks, all of us rich people who don't want to drive tuk-tuks. So what do I do? All I have is this worthless beach property on this dinky little island nobody's ever heard of called Phuket. So he went to uh, Club Med. He was an architect. He designed a Club Med to go on Kata Beach. He went to Club Med. They said, we love your plans. We love that island, but we don't ever put a Club Med anywhere. There's not a, an international airport. So Mom Tree went to the Air Force and said, uh, why don't you put a, 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 an airport on Phuket? They said, why would we put an airport on Phuket? There's not even a hotel on Phuket. And Mom Tree said, well, I've just closed a deal with Club Med. They're going to come to Phuket. And the Air Force said, okay, great, we'll build an airport. Then he goes back to Club Med and says, I've just closed a deal with the Air Force. They're going to put a, uh, an airport there. And because he was Mumluang, they believed him, and they signed the contract, bought the bit of land, bought his plans for their hotel. And with that, he then designed the, I mean, it's a very Thai story. What, right, what year was this happening, though? This is 83, gotta, 82, 83. So this is kind of, this is the when, beginning of Phuket, this, yeah. this hotel. Well, but, of this iteration of Phuket, of what we think of today as this tourist uh, mecca of Phuket. When I was here back in the, the 80s, it was, we were seeing 6 million tourists a year already. By now, I mean, pre-COVID, yeah. God knows what it was, how many millions it was. But all of that began with Momtri Hewakun trying to do whatever he could to reestablish his family's fortune, and he did spectacularly. He designed and built the Yacht Club. I don't know what it's called now. On Naihan Bay, it was the Yacht Club. The Le Meridien, uh, the Boathouse, uh, Club Med, and the thing above the boathouse, I don't know what, the Royal Villa or whatever it's called now, it's, it, that used to be Momtree's house up there. And then he, he no longer comes to Phuket uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, and so that now has become a very, very expensive shishi but residence. Before, the, before Club Med, in terms of hotels, I mean, Patong, the, at this point, Patong, nothing exists. It's still the no, banana, banana it's plantation. It's still the banana plantation. The on-on hotel. In Phuket Town, the uh, what was downtown in Phuket Town? The uh, well, they the, they the, would have had the, commerce back then. We had yeah. a guy on the podcast, Colin McKay, and yeah. kind of he brought us up to a, pretty much the '70s. So you, you've taken over, you've continued the the other part of that story, and basically, yes, Phuket was thriving in tin mining and commerce, but on, on the tourism side, we've never connected that on the podcast. So that's very yeah. interesting. So after. This all started in Kata. Club Med comes up. The Boathouse comes up where you were working as well. Uh, when you finally arrived at the Boathouse, what was the landscape of Phuket? Was there a Surin Beach? Were people up here? Was there people in Kamala? Could you paint that picture? Yeah, well, uh, they built uh, the, the Laguna uh, project, which I think, and again, I've been gone for 25 years, but this area where we are now was just... Uh, uh, bananas, coconuts, rubber, and, and, and pineapple when I lived here. The Laguna Project, the four properties, the four big properties, I think, that are there, the one that's got, like, a, a pool, a swimming pool designed to look like Angkor Wat and all that, that was all built while I was here. And the big, big project at the time, I, I covered uh, for Thailand Tatler Magazine the very first uh, international golf competition at the Blue Canyon. The Blue Canyon Golf Course was brand new, and there were people saying, my God, don't go play that. It's, it's built on top of 
old tantalum mines. The, the arsenic that's in that ground is in that grass, and you will carry that home in the cleats and your golf shoes, and that'll be in your home. That's arsenic. You don't want to go pay, play that course. I don't hear anybody you know, saying that today, but I actually interviewed Tiger Woods when he was 19 years old before anybody knew who Tiger Woods was. I had no idea who the guy was. He dissed me in front of a room full of golf reporters. That's uh, what did he say? Oh well, we uh, so so it's it's a story. I hope we have time. Oh, we have time. <laughs> so I go. I'm invited because I'm the only thing like a journalist on Phuket at this point. It's ninety one, ninety two, and the Blue Canyon is just opened, and they're having the Johnny Walker Classic. It's a, it's a big international thing. And the PR firm in Bangkok that they've hired has got all these, these golf reporters coming in from Singapore, Hong Kong, Japan, the places where Asians play golf. And there's nobody from, from Thailand coming. People in Thailand aren't playing golf much at that point. And the PR lady called me. She knew me, and she knew I wrote for a, a magazine called Thailand Tatler, uh, which was a high-so fashion and lifestyle magazine. Uh, and she said, uh, listen, you live there. Can I offer you a room for the weekend? I said, I don't know anything about golf. She said, can I offer you a room for the weekend and a tote bag full of Johnny Walker branded GAC, uh, hats and shirts and a bottle of booze and, and three golf balls branded with Johnny Walker. Can I offer you this? And please, please, please just write something local. We need to show that we promoted this in Thailand. And I said, fuck, I guess, all right. So I went up there, and I don't know jack about golf to this day. I don't care about I don't know anything about sports, any sports. But I go up there, and I'm wandering around looking for a human interest story that would interest the readers of a lifestyle, a high-so lifestyle magazine, and I'm finding nothing. And Sunday comes, and I got diddly. And the woman says to me, I, I say to her, look, I'm, I'm going to give you back your bag of gack because I can't find anything here to write about. She said, look, there's this kid, this young kid from L.A., Tiger something, and everybody's saying he's a real whiz, that he's going to be huge, he's going to be famous, uh, but none of the Asian golf reporters can interview him because he doesn't speak anything but English, and they don't speak English. Would you like to have lunch with Tiger Woods? I said, yeah, all right, I guess, I don't know. So we sat down, and it's, you know, the dining room at the Blue Canyon, and lunch is a buffet, of sandwiches, potato chips, and cans of soda. So we each sit down with a paper plate with a sandwich and potato chips and a soda. And it's this really good-looking, dark-skinned young man sitting opposite me who won't make eye contact. He's not nervous, and I didn't know at the time, but he, Tiger Woods had been interviewed since the age of five. He hated the press. He absolutely hated the press. Still to this day, hates the press, I'm sure. And he had a deal with the American golfing press that they didn't ask him any questions, any personal questions. You could only ask him about golf. I didn't know that. PR lady didn't tell me that. So we sit down. First question out of the box. Do you have a girlfriend? Oh, uh, what kind of music do you, do you listen to? Do you consider yourself black or Thai? And he looks at me for the first time. He makes eye contact, and he doesn't say anything. He stands up. He says, i got to hit the showers. And he turns around, and he walks away from me, from the table. We're in a room with 50, at least 60, uh, 
golf reporters who all would give their left nut to interview this kid, but they can't. And here's this nobody schmuck, this, this humor columnist from the island who's sitting and having a meal with the big star of the whole event and who obviously has no clue who he's talking to. So they're glaring at me, all these reporters, Japanese, Chinese, Singaporean reporters, they're glaring at me with hatred in their eyes. And when he got up from the table and walked away, there was almost a round of applause. They were so pleased. Then he stops, he turns around, he comes back to the table, he, without a word to me, he picks up his paper plate and his can of Coke and turns around and walks away again. He's not going to the shower. He's going to go eat his lunch, just not in my presence. So he dissed me in front of a room full of people. But about an hour later, I go past the bar, and sitting at the bar is this enormous black man. And I thought, in this company, he's got to be Tiger's dad. There's no other black people on the island of Phuket, none. And this guy has got to be Tiger's dad. So I go over to the bar, and I sit down, and I'm thinking, how do I start a conversation with this guy? I took out a pack of cigarettes and lit one, and immediately he slides over next to me and says, can I bum a smoke? So it turned out the Blue Canyon had a liquor license. They didn't have a tobacco license yet. They couldn't sell cigarettes. And he was jonesing. He was a two-pack-a-day man, and he was jonesing. And I took my Marlboros and my lighter and slid it between us. I said, hey, so what's your name? Earl Woods. Well, I'm Steve Ross. Hey, are you any relation to that tiger kid? He's my son. Really? What father doesn't want to talk about his son? I sat there for an hour with Earl Woods, and I got the interview that Tiger wouldn't give me. All the personal shit, all the shit that the teenage girls who read Thailand Tatler would eat up with a spoon. And later on, I found a photographer who got a real good picture, just a, a general uh, photo op, you know, a, a, a big line of photographers and Tiger sitting there, and they told him to smile. He doesn't smile naturally, but he has this gorgeous smile. He lights up for the camera and then puts it away as soon as the photo's taken. And this photographer had a great photo. And between the interview with Earl Woods, and eventually I got to speak to Tiger's mom as well and find out why Tiger was in such a bad mood. He didn't want to be here. He hates his Thai family. He hates the Thai half of himself. And because of the way they treated his mother, because she married a black man. And they cut her out. They, that's why he grew up in L.A. and never visited America. This was the first trip at the age visited of... Visited Thailand. Uh, never visited Thailand. Thank you. Uh, this was his first trip to Thailand ever. And it was because her family had disowned her. So he's, you know, screw you, as, as you might imagine. He was pretty pissed off at his Thai family. He didn't want to be there at all. But she did because dad was dead, and now her sisters were ready to embrace her again back into the family. And they're all sitting at a table with Team Tiger t-shirts, all these Thai matrons living it up. She hasn't seen her sisters in, in 20 years, and she's back with her sisters. So I eventually got to sit with them and get an interview. I'm, I'm sure he hates me because of the shit I put in Thailand Tatler that I got from his parents because it's just the shit he doesn't want anybody to know. Do you have a girlfriend? What kind of car do you drive? What kind of music do you listen to? Do you think you're black or Thai? That his father went off on and told me exactly how his, how his son feels about that. So I ended up getting, you know, the article, I probably got paid about 3,000 baht and a bag of gak and a nice hotel room for a weekend and, and a story, a dinner party story to tell about the time I met, the time Tiger Woods insulted me. Oh, that's great. I mean, I'm a golfer, so I'm hanging on to every word here. And I've played that course numerous times. Um, but it's even as a golfer, I didn't even realize that Tiger was half tied till maybe five years ago. Mm -hmm. They, they, he really keeps that like uh, oh, yeah. under the press. 
Um, and I'm assuming again, it's, I think his dad was in the military. So obviously mm-hmm. he's clearly, I'm not going to say anything, but I probably met the mom in Pattaya and, you know, no, but, no, I, no, oh, cause God, it, no. he was, he was situated in Pattaya. No, no. He, well, I don't know where he was situated. His job was buying all the plywood they needed to build the, uh, the air base at Sada hip mm. and, uh, her family owned a lumber mill. None of the men in her family would do business with a black man. They sent the daughter, which is an insult, right, in much of the world, uh, particularly for the initial meeting. You're setting up a business. Now, women run most of the businesses in Thailand. They're just uh, very, very capable and hardworking, and they don't drink and they don't whore around like the rest of us. And uh, so she went and met this black man, and they, they, he bought, what, how much lumber does it take to build an American air base during the Vietnam War? He bought $10 million, $20 million worth of lumber from her and her family, and still her family would not meet this man. She fell in love with him. They married, and she gave up her family and her nation uh, to go live in L.A. and be his wife. So it's not that military man meets her in a bar shit. Uh, she comes from a very wealthy, very well-established Isan family. Isn't that where Sada Hip is? That's Isan, mm-hmm. isn't it? Uh, so no, it's not that story, but it's a story of blatant racism <clears throat> that Tiger just since childhood has no time for that, that family who he doesn't speak a word of Thai. He doesn't worship the Buddha. He doesn't give a rat's ass about Thailand. As Thailand, when you first arrived in terms of, uh, racism and, and maybe even seeing that firsthand in Phuket or all in Thailand in general, has it changed since you've, uh, you know, since you've been here in the '90s to today? And could you? Is there any specific examples of what you've seen and how has that changed? Well, I want to first make a note that that I addressed this this question as a joke in my YouTube channel, and I got slammed. And you're just bring the, pull the mic oh. in and then down a bit so it doesn't cover your face too much. Uh, just push it down. There you go. Better. See how you can see yourself on camera. Yeah. Perfect. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, testing, just, testing, one, just two, do three. it. So if you're looking at me, just make sure the mic's looking at your mouth. Yeah, we, we've had some problems with audio later, but I should be fine. Okay. Okay. Um, sorry, continue. Uh, so uh, when I addressed it as a joke on my YouTube channel, without even watching the piece, dozens of guys jumped on me, called me woke, called me a, a snowflake, just because the question, is this racist? was in the title of a video essay. None of them watched the essay. None of them knew what they were talking about. But just this topic, racism, uh, if all you do is bring it up, people jump on you for, for uh, apparently being, you know, a, a snowflake. So that being said, everybody, don't, don't, don't bother, all right? If you, don't bother jumping on us just because we address this topic. So, to address the topic. Oh, also, if you want to address the camera, that one. In case you, like, if you, some, Tim, yeah. Tim Newton's always working the camera on us here. Yeah. So, well, yeah. I, I forget it's there. I just get <laughs> into my rap and I forget it's, it's there. Okay. Uh, but uh, the only racism I can speak to is tie on white, right? I don't know what a black man experiences here. There was a black man with a young Thai lady in the restaurant today uh, when I was waiting for this interview. Uh, and like I said, uh, when I interviewed Tiger Woods, I knew this man was had to be Tiger's dad because he was black, and there were no black people on Phuket. 
There weren't black tourists coming to, to Phuket. Uh, now there are many more black people. I don't know how they are treated, but I can tell you that I still go places where there is a farang price and a Thai price. Stated, bluntly, on a sign, for public, they're not ashamed of it. That is textbook classic racism. You this think that's a good, do you agree with that or disagree? Because we also get it in the national parks too, right? Well, that's one of the places, yeah. And it's a deep, deep question. Yes, it is textbook racism. Uh, just flat out, it's racist. Is that a bad thing? I think, yes, it's a bad thing. The next question is, do they have a right to do it anyway? And that's the more problematic thing. It's their national park. It's their given rehabilitation center. It's their waterfall. It's their elephant training camp. It's their umbrella factory. Whatever they want to choose, whatever they want to charge, you know, let the buyer beware. Caveat emptor. Uh, whatever, the, let the invisible hand of the marketplace drive that decision-making process. I, there's a little bit of a libertarian streak in me that says they can charge whatever they want for whatever they want. Soy bang la, every woman sets her, her rakatua, her price. It's a different price depending on the falang that's sitting on that stool next to her. Some, a guy like you pays less than a guy like me. Guaranteed. She will settle for much so less. What am, I, what am I paying? I have no idea. <laughs> but you're gorgeous, right? You're a good-looking hey, guy. Right? Hans, you do you disagree? To, you, you go to the gym, right? I'd probably get I, even I, less. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Hans, Hans, Hans is paying more, eh? Hans gets it for free. Look oh, at yeah. Look Brandon's, at these legs. Brandon's these got legs. like 20 years on me, so. <laughs> if you, oh, if you ever want to put the pillow behind your back, some people do that. These couches get a bit slippery. Yeah, they do. So back uh, to me it's, being it's uh, gorgeous. Nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, so my point is that is her right, right? She, she can set the price however she wants. The guy who rents you your motorcycle, he says 200 baht a day. You say, oh, man, that's too much. You start to walk away. He says, 150. That's his right, you know? So in the national parks, at the umbrella factory, whatever price they want to put for whoever they want to put, there is a libertarian in me that says that's their right, and, and you either pay it or you don't, but you don't bitch on the Internet about it. At the same time, it is racist, and I purport at least to be uh, against racism, right? So it's a real fraught question. And well, you're, you're up in Kalak, and Kalak's full of national parks, so you must, yeah. when you want to enter certain ones, you're... You, <laughs> you see them charging. Have you had a go, or how do you handle those situations? Every morning, all right, every morning I ride my, be my bike to the beach. I turn right. I go to the end of that road, which ends at an old tin mine in the national park. The last about two and a half kilometers of the ride are in the park. I ride under a gate, under a, 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 with a guard, with a guy sitting there in camo, He's not army, he's a park ranger, but he's sitting there and there's a sign that says, uh, Thai people 50 baht, farang 120, right? I don't ever pay anything because he sees me every morning. I'm on my bike, I ride in, I go to the tin mine, I stop on the beach, I smoke a joint. I get on the bike, I come back and I ride home. I go past him twice every morning and often it's a different guy, but they all know me. There's like five guys that work there. They all know me, they let me in and out. Once a month on the 20th, my friend Hans and I go there and they have this big beach cleanup. Once a month, they get all the park rangers from all around South Thailand and they all put on their t-shirts and they all get together in a big gang and they go out and clean the beach, right? They have, they have old rice sacks and they clean the plastic off the beach. 
And of course, being Thais, being Asians, being communal, they all work in one huge group together, which means that they'll walk 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet, chatting, singing, snacking, and then bend down and pick up a single piece of plastic. And if each of them does that as they walk slowly along, they clean the beach completely. Me and Hans being Falang, we're off on our own. We're, we're in the mangroves with our bags fighting the mosquitoes, each of us working alone because we're Falang, we're Westerners. And uh, at any rate, on the 20th of every month, Hans and I drive in under that gate, don't pay a dime. But I had a friend come down from Bangkok. He said, I want to see the park. I want to see this beach you talk about, this 13 kilometers of empty beach. And I said, okay. And we went down there in a car and we drove up to the gate. And it's, and it's me in the car, and I'm on the side with the, uh, uh, where the guard shack is. So they're seeing me, the same guys that let me in for free every morning. I come through in a car with a stranger, another Falang, and it's 240 baht. This time I got to pay. Same guys, right? Tomorrow morning I'll go through that gate. They won't charge me a dime. And do you guys pay, or do you have yeah, a conversation? Yeah, we paid. You have sure. a conversation, like, hey, no, we paid. Yeah. I mean, you know, he wanted to see the the disused tin mine. Well, you God see, there, there's actually three. There might be three or four tiered prices here. It's funny. So, like, for sure, okay, you have the Thai price. That's the Thai price. You will never get that. Then you have the tourist price. Uh, but then you have the I speak enough Thai, or here's my passport. I li here look at all my stamps price. And usually, if the park entry is 50 baht for a Thai and 200 for a Farang, let's call it the experienced Farang Thai price is about 100. So you can okay. you can save and and usually all it is is like even I don't have the Thai driver license. I have the international one, but they'll ask for the Thai driver's license. You have that. That's actually a pass to wherever the fuck you want to go. Mm. Um, but sometimes I, I don't have my passport. Um, I'll just. If you can speak enough Thai and answer about two questions back, then you get it. Yeah. And they're pretty and they're pretty nice. Sometimes if the lady's in a bad mood, you're never getting it. But yeah. if she if she's in a good mood and you're talking Thai to her, okay, it's not 50, 100 instead of 200. Yeah. And, and, and that part you just feel good about. And at the end of the day, also, those park rangers, they're just told what to do. They are. They don't know anything. Yeah. They're just it's like, on the sign. They right. cannot contradict the sign. Yeah. They can't. Yeah. They can't be on it. And, you know, it's, again, if you... Uh, that, that process of getting the sort of mediated price, you're not paying the falang price, you're not paying the tourist price, you're not paying the Thai price, but you've wrangled a price, you know. That I find a lot with private merchants, uh, the guy I rent my motorcycle from, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and again, that's that laissez-faire capitalism of the, the, the intimate, it's almost a barter exchange at that point. It's two neighbors, you know, trading a chicken for a pig or whatever. It's... And, and there is a sense of satisfaction that your study, you know how to hold your shoulders, you know how to hunch when you ask for something, you know how to dip your head when you walk between two people who are conversing, uh, you know how to smile at everything, everything, always smile, and that gets you benefits, and you feel great about that. You know you're never going to get the Thai benefit, like yeah. you say, you're never going to get the Thai fry. But it's Thailand, so it is exactly. What it is. It's and Thailand. I'm fine with that. I mean, we live here. This is in our land, and I, I I respect the fact that they are nationalistic in that sense because our countries are not, and we've probably lost that identity. Uh, but it's hard to say because we never. They've been here yeah, since. No. 
like two two thousand. Well, actually, it's going back to what uh, Sukhothai thirteen hundred, but before that, about six six hundred A.D. Let's call it the Chimera, the Mong, the Thai. That this this land they were living together. Yeah, uh, up north. I they mean, down go here. to Canada. We don't have that history. So well, I just spent eight years uh, working on an army base in El Paso, Texas, and nationalism is is alive and well and frightening uh, on an army base in El Paso, Texas. Uh, but yeah, it is, uh, they're very, very proud to be Thai, and it seems a more wholesome kind of pride than the pride that erected a gallows on the front lawn of my capital last January 6th. Yeah. The nationalist pride that took a dump in the rotunda of the American capital uh, is not an attractive kind of pride. This kind of pride on my main street on Turtle Beach at 8 o'clock every morning, you can hear the national anthem playing at the Tessabon office as they raise the flag. And everybody stops. Everybody stands still. People who are seated stand up. It used to be that way in the movie theaters. I don't know if it still is. But I think if I'm on that main street at 8 o'clock riding my bike back from the beach, I'll stop, park the bike, and just stand on the sidewalk with everybody else. I love it. And I'm not a jingoistic. I'm not a, a nationalist kind of person. I believe I'm a citizen of the world. I'm happy to be a guest here. I know I'm not Thai, but I will still stand there quietly for that 30 seconds that they're raising the flag. And you can't even see the flag from the main street. They're around a corner, but you can hear through the loudspeakers the, the, the national anthem. Uh, and, and I like that. It's a very attractive kind of nationalism. It's gentle, it's sweet, it's non-threatening, it's non-aggressive, and that kind of stuff I like very much. But it is singular. Compared to, like, Canada and U.S., it's more of a melting pot, and, I mean, it's hard to... Uh, the culture is much more deep here. There are the stories, there are the customs. I mean, if there was a sandwich here six th in the, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, they got sandwiches older than the U.S., so, I mean... <laughs> There, there's, there's yeah, a yeah. different sense to it, um, being Thai, and and yeah. I'm I, I could never even. I mean, you go up to Sukhothai and you see these, um, these steeples and the, these, these. Yeah, that's one of the wonderful things. It's on another level. We don't have that in Canada. Yeah. So in Chiang Mai, you walk past a 700 year old stupa that's got a sign that says "Free Wi-Fi." Yes. Right? Yeah. It's right in the middle of town. There are people parking their cars next to these stupas, right? There are loose bricks. You can take home a 700-year-old brick from a national monument, What? except there are 150 national monuments just like it. No one's going to notice or care that you picked up a brick off the pavement and took yeah. it home. It's, there is, there's centuries and centuries of culture and history all around you, and it is very insular. There weren't, you know, Canada and America, we, we were settled and apologies to any Native Americans watching, but we were settled by all different stripes of, of immigrants. Your nation and my nation, my four grandparents came from four different European uh, countries, and they didn't have a language in common except Yiddish when they came here, or came here, when they came to America. So we are a melting pot. We're a blending place. This place, no. It's not as insular as Japan, because Japan was an island. So they were one language, one ruler, one religion, uh, and one hair color and eye color for a thousand years and with no knowledge that there was anything on the other side of the water. They thought they were all alone, that the only people in the world 
were Shinto and spoke Japanese and worshipped the emperor and lived on this island. And it was a huge psychic shock to those people when somebody who looked different showed up, right? And it's somewhat like that here. Even though they've been open to the West, you know, historically and traditionally for a long time, there's still a Thai person looks like a Thai person. A Thai That's person eats like a Thai person, sits like a Thai person, sings like a Thai person, laughs like a Thai person, and so everybody else is different. Yeah, it was like this in Hong Kong as well. I mean, there's some, I'm sure you're aware of the author James Clavel uh, and Tai Pan and Shogun. And yeah, there's parts of that, that book, Tai Pan, when, you know, the, the British were showing up on ships and they thought they were ghosts. Yeah. And so the, the word, and it's still the word that they use, guailo. And, or in China, our nick, so it's funny, here we're called falang. In China, we're called waigo ren. Uh, waigo literally means, Wai means like outside, guo means country, and ren means person. So it literally means outside of this country person, right? So, and they'll say that to you on the street. Now, imagine in U.S. and Canada, if we started going around, foreigner, foreigner, yeah. foreigner. Yeah. Hey, uh, foreigner, yeah. No, but they do that here. And sure. I, I'm not offended because it's still, it's so new. Yeah. I mean, you're talking, we've only really been coming here for 30, 40 years. I mean, foreigners into U.S. and Canada, well, we all were one, mm -hmm. and we've been coming there for 400 years. So it's, you get used yeah. to it. You can't, be, you can't be pointing at a Chinese person in Canada and saying foreigner because their great-great-grandparents probably helped build the railroad. So yeah. they're not really They might foreign. not be a foreigner. Um, May I just say, real quick, King Rat by James Clavell is not only his best book. I haven't read that one. I think that is one of the best novels ever written. King Rat. If anybody gets, if you're a reader, you know, and if we get 2 million views, two of you will be readers. Yeah. But uh, James Covell, he's famous for Shogun, uh, Taipan. And, Noble and, House. And, and, and Noble House. Yeah. But King Rat, which is from his own experience, it's semi-memoir, which is one reason I love it, uh, but it's of his experiences in the Changi prison camp in Singapore, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, probably Hong Kong, one of those places uh, during the Second World War. And it is chilling and and true and beautiful The the language in that book, uh, beautiful language used to describe a horrific, horrific experience. And uh, James Clavell, I'd give that guy a kid. Yeah, I got just I got his. I did There's notice two of them up there when I came in. I noticed they're Clavelle. great. They're they're difficult reads because they're quite long with small print. I've gotten yeah. through them, but then it's you know you five years ago I have to go back and read yeah. them again. Yeah. Um, I, I want to jump into a question, um, but I, I need to tell a story first. Um, so I visited Myanmar before. Mm -hmm. Are we so good? Okay, so he I was yawning. No, he's tired. Yeah. Oh, it's hard. He's just hitting buttons back there. It's yeah, he, he doesn't get yawning. to engage. Jump in when you can. We need to get you a camera. Oh, no. Um, nice. I was visiting Myanmar maybe four years ago, and in Myanmar, I was up in Mandalay, and you get on the motorbike and you would go to visit these temples, and when you pulled up on the motorbike, uh, I don't know the Myanmar currency, but you have to use that at that time, and there's not a lot of value to it. Whatever. You show up to the temples, and then they want to charge you for parking your motorbike. But the charge in conversion to U.S. dollar was probably 10 cents. So the point of this question is I would go, I'll give you $3. And they'd look at you like $3. They were charging us the same price they charged each other. They didn't know how to handle any tourists any differently. So the point of that story is when you first moved to Phuket in 87, 
did the Thais figure out how to charge the foreigners at that point, or was it still so innocent? Well, no. You know, Phuket had been on the backpacker trail since the 60s. And when I was there, I got there in 88, and there were already old guys sitting on bar stools saying, oh, you missed the golden era. The golden era of Phuket was the 60s. And the guy next to him says, no, the golden era was the 70s. And now I talk about the 80s and the 90s, and, and young guys like yourself say, oh, wow, it's, it was idyllic. It was, that's gone forever. That was the golden era. And, uh, you know, everybody's right. Uh, that was the golden era for them. Again, life is experienced subjectively. And for them, that was the golden era. For you, this will be the golden era. And for me, it was the 80s. But the Thais had already been welcoming the backpackers on these beaches, these western beaches, uh, since at least the 1960s. I interviewed a guy, Arthur Clark, not the science fiction writer, but a missionary. He was a Seventh-day Adventist missionary on Phuket, and he had been interred during the war. He had been born in China to missionary parents, met and married his wife, uh, in an internment camp in, in, in China, actually, during the war. And then they came down here when the communist government of China kicked out all the Falang, all the white people. They came to Phuket, so it was probably 50, 1949, 1950. He shows up here with his wife and a couple babies and opens a church on Phuket, 1949, 1950. If you can imagine Phuket... It was a two-day trip to Patong Beach from Phuket Town. How would they have gotten here back then without the international airport? There were oh, they came by boat. There were no, like, where did the roads end at that point? Yeah, well, there was no bridge, obviously. So right. just to get, uh, he would have come down, and there's a wonderful book, not by Dr. Clark, not by Mr. Clark. There's a book called Siam Was Our Home, written by Edna Bruner Buckley, who came in 1904 to Trang to open the first Western hospital outside of Bangkok in this country. And she stayed in Thailand from 1904, she was 21 years old, until the 60s. She ended her life running a guest house in Chiang Mai, owning a guest house in Chiang Mai. And she spent virtually her whole adult life here uh, from the age of 21 until she was quite an old lady. And in her 70s, she went on a bus tour of the Shan States by herself in her 70s, uh, which would have been like the 1950s. And at any rate, so she describes the way you got down here to the south is you came by boat from Bangkok down the river to the sea, down the coast, you know, Hua Hin, Chumpon, Surat, and uh, Nakhon, and uh, finally somewhere around, somewhere around Nakhon, Surat. Like Nakhon Si Tamara. Yeah, you'd get on a, uh, uh, an ox cart or a truck and then it was three days from the coast to Trang in 1904. So we imagine by, say, 1949, when Dr. Clark came here, <clears throat> excuse me, no problem. Grab it some. probably would have been a three-day boat trip still uh, to Nakhon or, or Surat, and then probably three or four days across the peninsula in some kind of beat-up old truck over the spine of the Krau Peninsula, where Delesips designed his never-to-be-built canal, and down the other side to Krabi, and then by ferry from Krabi to, to, to Phuket. And so the whole trip from Bangkok, probably a week or two anyway. So to Krabi, and then, yeah, because you no. still wouldn't be able to go by land to get over here. No, no. There was nothing coming straight down the peninsula by land. See, I heard you they... had to go by boat. And there were bandits. I mean, that little strip of Thailand... <clears throat> that, that comes down the peninsula. Yeah, that that's always been bandit. Well, I heard this is this is mafia country. 
Well, the South. Listen, this, I think the Northerners and the Centralers and the Isan people will tell you that the Southerners are all thugs and 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 uh, ruffians and and not to be trusted. I watch a lot of old movies, old Thai movies, uh, on YouTube, and that seems to be a thread. People from the South are dark skinned, and there's a lot of Muslims down here. Therefore, people from the South are not to be trusted. And they speak Lang Thai, which nobody understands. Somebody from Bangkok can understand Pasanula. Uh, they can understand what they speak in Chiang Mai. Everybody can understand Isan because there's Isan people making some thumb in every city in, 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 in Thailand. But the Southerners, uh, when they go north, they'll speak Central or this, but whatever. Nobody can understand Lang Thai outside of the southern provinces. So the southern, the, the south has always been a dark place full of mystery and distrust and violence and aggression in the minds of people in the north and the, and the central. And the fact that, you know, these three southern provinces, what are they, Yala, Naradiwat, and Pa-pa-pa-pa, anyway, where they're blowing up schools and blowing up bus stations and yep. stuff like that because they've only been part of Thailand since the end of World War II. Before that, they were Malaysia's northernmost sultanate. And they, there are people alive who remember when they weren't Thai and this whole thing of having to go to school on monastery grounds and having Buddhist curricula, having Muslim children who used to be Malay, just speaking Thai instead of Malay is a point of contention. So all of that adds or fuels to this perception of Southerners, dark-skinned, weirdly dressed, oddly speaking Southerners uh, being distrusted. Uh, I think that's that's a big part of it. Well, it would have been the Wild West down here. I mean, again, there's yeah. no roads. It's jungle. You, yeah. I, uh, we, uh, Colin McKay was explaining that a lot of the roads that they followed to get across from uh, Nakansi Tamarat, even down to Krabi, it's actually you're just following elephant trails. Mm -hmm. It's the yeah. only way to get through. <clears throat> and then hopefully you didn't get run over. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, there was an author who lived on Phuket uh, named Tristan Jones. He's a Welsh guy. And, he's, still, and he's still here? No. Okay. No, he died in 89, 90. But he's, he had about 20 books about yachting. He was a single-handed yachtsman. His business was uh, bringing, he'd get hired to bring a yacht from Europe to America, from Europe to Africa. Somebody would buy a yacht and then didn't want to sail it home to, to, yep. to Canada or wherever. So uh, Tristan, they would hire Tristan, and he wouldn't hire a crew because he was cheap that way. So he held the record for the most single-handed crossings of the Atlantic. He did a lot of other things. He took a boat, a sailing boat, from the Dead Sea, the lowest navigable water on the planet, to Lake Titicaca, the highest navigable water on the planet, single-handedly sailed a boat the entire distance from the Dead Sea in the Middle East to the, 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 across the Mato Grosso, up the Amazon to Lake Titicaca. He did amazing shit, and he ended his life. He lost his legs to diabetes and couldn't sail anymore, and he just washed up on Phuket, mm. ended his life on Phuket. But his last book's called To Venture Further, and it's about taking a long-tailed boat with a crew of three disabled Thai boys and him without his legs, three disabled Thai teenagers, one with only one arm, uh, one was deaf, and one, I think, had a cleft palate. And the four of them took a long tail from here across the Kra Peninsula uh, to the other side, up the Gulf, all the way up the, the, the Menam Chao Praya to the Maping, all the way to Chiang Mai. And he wrote a book to venture further about this, this experience. Well, the part, the leg of the trip from here 
to the Gulf of Ty- or, uh, yeah, the Gulf of Siam. <clears throat> On this side of the island, gra- grab some water. No, don't worry, we'll take a little. Your is your. Uh, so we'll continue this part as well. And um, just before we we continue this part of the story, if people were about an hour in, I think well, we st- I bet you we'll get a lot more in, but. Um, this podcast, the initial, this part of the podcast, we're really focusing on Steve's experience in the history of Phuket in the sense of his experience from that history. Next, we are going to move into who is Steve Ross and more popularly, uh, through, uh, Pete at Tyrish times and talk a little bit about, you know, his, his, uh, misfortunes as well. So that's coming. Stay tuned.